This is The Noted Liar, a podcast of short stories. Number two, Paradise Pwned by Glyn Cannon. The desk is shiny, so shiny. Greg has never seen a shinier desk. The surface is white, not mirrored, but Greg can see his face perfectly in it. The tabletop is empty. It measures about four feet by eight, opaque perspex with spindly black metal legs, and it looks like it is serenely floating. Greg leans over to appreciate its brilliance. The surface is as good as a mirror, better even. Greg looks better in the desk than he does in real life, his skin clearer, less angry with acne pockmarks, his hair less lank and limp, more deliberately tended. The door to the glass meeting room swings open with a clank. Greg, good morning. In comes Isabel Sun Chow, senior personnel officer at Capax Day, and she sits at the desk with a tablet in one hand with a stylus between two fingers and a coffee in the other. Putting it down, the cup leaves a slight ring on the tabletop, which she briskly wipes away with her sleeve. Uh, good morning. She rattles through a standard set of interview questions with a smiley insouciance, even stopping mid-question to read an unrelated email before carrying on with a satisfied hum. Her lack of engagement relaxes Greg. He is not bothered at all by her smiley rudeness. He is still too in awe of the desk. So, you like gaming? She asks, finally looking up. Uh, yes, yes I do. How many hours a week? Oh, uh, fifteen, ten, no more than... Great. What kind of thing? Uh, All sorts. Shooters, puzzlers, racing platforms, strategy, Sun Chao adds sceptically. Shooters, for sure. I like uh, adventure ones. Sandboxes? Sandboxes. You know, big open world games where you can do whatever you like. Greg nods. He knows what she means. Greg has played many of these. They have vast maps and missions and epic quests and the very latest in polygon shaders and tracers and rendering technology, immersing the player as deeply as possible into cityscapes and savannas. Greg's hardest of hardcore gamer friend, Mike, calls them Blade of Grass games, whereby the designers have clearly agonised over everything right down to the individual blades of grass parting as the player avatar swishes through them. They are all about tiny detail and vast cinematic sweep, with the player placed artfully between the pixel dirt and the pinpoint stars. Greg likes linear violent shooters. Look at this, move here, shoot this. Much more his bag. Yeah, I love them, nodded Greg. Okay, Greg, I think you're our guy. Excuse me? Greg's face drops in confusion. It sounds like Sun Chao has just offered him the job there and then. Yeah, if you're good for today, we can get going straight away. Or you can start tomorrow? Start tomorrow sounds a bit too close to not at all. No, great, great, that's great, let's do it. Great. Sun Chao quickly covers some paperwork on her tablet, handing Greg the stylus for his electronic signature. Standard stuff, she assures him. NDA, waiver, personal deeds. She pulls a small laminated pass from her pocket, now his and to be worn at all times, and stands to lead him to his station. They stride past a series of indistinguishable rooms filled with rows of noisy programmers, chatting and working. 
Large, messy whiteboards on wheels stand at intervals in the aisles like sails. Each room comes with its own gleaming kitchen bar. At the end of the programmer's quarters, a staircase down turns them back on themselves, and they walk along a corridor bisecting the floor underneath. Strip lights pop on as they pass. You'll get the hang of it, reassures Sun Chao. It's not actually a very big building. Passing a series of humming server rooms, they turn down a smaller corridor to a row of unmarked doors. Sun Chao pauses by a small set of lockers and asks Greg to stow his phone, for technical reasons, connectivity, interference or something, and then she counts the doors. Your number one, two, three. She opens the door and ushers Greg in. The room is small and dark. A small spotlight automatically flicks on as they enter. On a black desk, there is a small flat-screen monitor and nothing else. Sun Chao invites Greg to sit. Great, so what am I actually doing? They'll explain in a moment. There are bathrooms down the halls on the right. Get comfortable. She snaps the door behind her. Swinging on the desk chair, Greg listens to her heels as they clack towards silence. Once she is gone for a couple of minutes, Greg realises he has not asked how much this job pays. With a metallic snort, something switches on in the ceiling above him. The monitor flicks into life. A page or two of code rains down through a boot-up cycle. The screen flashes a couple of times before a dashboard panel fills it, a series of numbers around one large clock-like graphic. Hello, Greg. A young female voice speaks from nowhere. Uh, yes? Hi, Greg. I'm Beth. I'm going to introduce you to the system. Have you ever played a game called J-Ride 4? As she asks this, a small projector hanging behind Greg blarts into life and throws a large blue square onto the wall the desk is facing. On this larger screen, another boot-up process begins. J-Ride? Yes, yes, I have. J-Ride is a global phenomenon. He is a male of a certain age and demographic that plays video games. Of course he has. J-Ride is not just an open-world game. It is the open-world game. Its first iteration, released almost 20 years earlier, blew away the gaming world with its new go-anywhere-do-anything dynamic. There were missions, there was a story, but there was no obligation on the player to follow where they were being led. Set in an ersatz New York, the player could wander the city at will, stealing cars and mowing down pedestrians. You could race in underground leagues or just drive around soaking up the sights and the sounds of a fully realised metropolis. Computer-controlled citizens walk the streets, nonchalantly passing you with a mutter or cowering in fear at the mayhem you were unleashing. It was like nothing else that had come before it. In its day, J-Ride 1 was magnificent. In the years since, three sequels have followed, each time the ante has been upped in terms of realism, both in terms of visual verisimilitude and gameplay. A heavy-handed gangster aesthetic dominates, but out of that has grown a wealth of possible activities. In-game currency can be spent in an array of shops for clothes, cars and guns, or thrown away in casinos and strip joints as unreal as the real thing. You can go fishing, sit in for hours on end waiting for a virtual bite, you can play golf in online tournaments against hundreds of players at once, or you can hotwire speedboats or fighter jets and just speed around the island borders of an entire digitised state taking selfies against algorithmic sunsets. Okay, cool. The developers have let us have an alpha of J-Ride 5. Greg's heart jumps. Mike and many other members of Greg's social circle are hyped to the point of tears about the latest release. It is supposed to have graphics capable of street-level screenshots indistinguishable from real life. It supposedly has non-player characters that will display the widest array of interactive responses ever seen. And Greg is about to play it months before Mike ever will. Wow, really? 
Yep. You actually want me to playtest J-Ride 5? No. Oh. Now that he thinks about it, aside from the monitor, the desk is devoid of controllers, a keyboard, a mouse, or anything. We want you to watch our core play it. Our core. Greg worries. Is he supposed to know what that means? Greg, do you see the dial? Uh, on the screen here? No, an actual dial. It might be tucked just behind the monitor. Greg reaches behind the flat screen. Sure enough, he pulls out a small grey plastic box with nothing on it but one metallic dimmer switch. One sole black cable, coiled like an old telephone cord, runs underneath the desk. The box has no markings of any kind on it. Got it. Okay, just hang on to that. We're just setting up the game for you. Over the intercom, he hears Beth muttering to a colleague. On the large projected screen, the unseen programmers click through the startup screens. At character creation, the player decides upon the name and appearance of their avatar. Beth and persons unseen select male, and a body of white sculpted clay gently rotates on the screen as they quickly modify body shape and size. The screen camera subtly zooms up to the face. It sprouts a shock of hair of a similar size and shade as Greg. He looks around the room, suddenly aware that they are watching him. He hears another low mutter and a giggle. On screen, they name the avatar Corey. You're not a fan of 80s films, Greg. Not so much, replies Greg politely. Most films from the 1980s feel slow and look slightly out of focus, as far as he has ever seen. Okay, here we go, continues Beth. How much do you know about what Capax Day does, Greg? Uh, a bit. Is it AI? Yeah, drawls Beth. Which is to do with... Uh, no, sorry, I don't know a lot about it. That's fine, Greg. Less is better. Okay, essentially an AI is going to play the game and you're going to watch. It's learning to play and you're teaching it. It's going to look a bit weird to start with. On the large screen, an introductory swoop over the city searches for the nascent avatar. Teach it? Yes. I am not sure that... You have the dial, okay? Basically you watch. When you want to turn the dial up, turn it up. When you want to turn it down, turn it down. Greg waits for a little more explanation. None comes. Uh, sorry, I missed that. When do I turn it up? When you want to. Okay, why would I want to? When you want to turn it down, turn it down. Okay, here's Corey. Like I say, he's going to look a bit weird to begin with. Have fun. The intercom snaps off with a clip. The game camera dips into an alleyway. The Corey avatar, in plain white t-shirt and black jeans, stands impassively at one end. Greg tentatively touches the dial. Two things happen. On the small monitor beside him, the digital clock flashes green and a number appears beside the clock, ticking down in milliseconds. On the large screen, Corey lurches forward. In a series of jerked movements, he steps forwards and backwards, turning left and right at random. Within a few steps, the avatar finds itself facing a wall, flailing pointlessly. Greg lets go. The clock stops and turns red. Corey stops moving. Hello? Hello, I think something's wrong. After a few seconds, the intercom clips on again. What's up? asks Beth. I think you have a bug or something. He's just sort of... No, that's fine. Give it time. Beth's voice snaps off again. Greg shrugs. He is getting paid either way, presumably. He grabs hold of the dial again. The clock turns green and Corey resumes his jerking and twisting, arms a blur. Greg turns the dial up and down. It seems to make no difference at all. The only control Greg seems to have is to let go of the dial and pause both the clock and Corey, or touch it again to reawaken both. Fine, he's getting paid either way.
After what feels like hours of this, Greg's stomach grumbles loudly. He checks his watch. 52 minutes. Almost an hour, at least. Let's call it a whole hour. He goes for a pee, and then before re-entering the small room, decides to briefly explore upstairs to ascertain his lunch options. In one of the large programmer's rooms, the kitchen bar is empty. He casually checks the cupboards and fridges. You can help yourself. Greg jumps slightly. A small, surprisingly youthful man in a cargo shorts and an Oxford is behind him, loading berries into a blender. You can help yourself to anything. It's everybody's. Oh, great. You knew? I've just started. I'm downstairs. In the pens. The pens? Shorts and Oxford second guesses himself, then shrugs. That's fine too. Like they said at induction, it's everybody's. Greg finds a plate and begins to load it up with fruit and pastries. A young woman with dreadlocks walks past the kitchen bar, urgently scanning the room. She finds her target. Greg. Yes? Okay, good. You're still here. Beth, realises Greg, a moment too late. Yeah, I was just... Breaks are fine, Greg, but HR did explain you're getting paid by the hour. Uh, yes, he lies. They may well have explained that, and he had not been listening. This is entirely possible. Shorts and Oxford, mortified to find himself in the middle of a confrontation, however mild, stays as still and quiet as he can. But not by your hours, right? You got that, Greg. Per hour of learning? Yeah, sure, he lies again. Cool. Well, back to it, Greg. She strides off. Greg bristles at Beth's overuse of his name. She makes it something to beat him with. Shorts and Oxford, relieved at the danger passing, returns to making his smoothie. Having blended in by not blending, he can now happily pulse the smoothie maker loudly. Greg leaves him to it. Back in the small room, brushing pastry crumbs off the desk, it dawns on Greg what Beth means. The clock only moves when his hand is on the dial. He is being paid by the hour, but not his hours. Picking up the dial again, Corey resumes his spasmodic dance. Greg experiments with turning the dial up and down slowly. He begins to feel the movement smooth a little as he turns the dial to the right. By the end of the second hour, Greg can see a firm correlation between the turns of his dial and a smoother progression of the Avatar's strange spasms. At the beginning of the third hour, Corey suddenly walks assertively to the end of the alleyway. Greg whoops with approval and turns the dial up to maximum. Corey hesitates, flailing and twitching where he stands. Greg turns the dial down, deflated. A moment later, Corey takes another step forward. Greg rewards him with an upward turn of the dimmer switch. In this way, Corey begins to edge towards the end of the alleyway, step by step, turn by turn. Greg sits forwards, gratified by the improvement in feedback. At the beginning of the fourth hour, Corey suddenly strides confidently out of the alleyway, only to be immediately run down by a virtual bus. Greg arrives early at Capax Day the following morning and raids a couple of croissants and a large mug of coffee on his way down to his cell. The server rooms beep and coo calmly as he walks past. Sitting at his desk, he wonders if he will have to wait long for Beth to get there, only to find that his presence in the room triggers the boot-up sequence all on its own. He is impressed to discover that overnight, Corey has undergone a massive leap forward in coordination. The twitching and jerkiness is all but gone. Without any turn of the dial at all, Corey walks to the end of the alleyway and pauses before stepping into traffic. The avatar surveys the street, pacing up and down indecisively. Just pick one, mutters Greg, turning up the dial arbitrarily. Corey marches up the street, clumsily weaving between sidewalk and thoroughfare. He shoulder barges one virtual citizen, who grumbles loudly. Smiling, Greg turns up the dial moderately. Corey barges into the next passerby, 
and then one more. Reaching the crosswalk, Corey hesitantly steps into traffic. The hesitation means that a small red car ploughs into Corey, sending him spiralling. The hit is not enough to kill the Avatar. Corey picks himself up painfully. Limping back towards the car with sudden improbable strength, Corey pulls open the driver's door with one hand, yanking out the drive with the other. It is one of the game's signature moves. In appreciation, Greg turns the dial up to maximum. The driver, a cartoonish old lady, hobbles away, crying. Corey sits in the driver's seat motionless. Suddenly, the car lurches forward into a wall, grinding furiously into brickwork. The car swings a little as Corey tries steering left and right before reversing backwards a few feet and then slamming into the wall again. Flames begin to emanate from the car's engine, the in-game indicator that the vehicle has suffered too much damage and will soon explode. A second later it does, in an impressive fireball that takes Corey with it. Greg goes to look for Beth. The programmer's quarters are alive with chat and keyboard patter. The rooms are overwhelmingly full of men. He presumes she will stand out, but he cannot see her. Heading back downstairs, he crosses paths again with Shorts and Oxford. Hey, how was your smoothie? Sorry, you were making a smoothie? Shorts and Oxford pauses a moment. Oh yeah, I was. Hello. Greg, says Greg, offering a hand. Oh, uh, Philip. Hello. Philip turns hesitantly, his eyes pleading with Greg. We done here? I'm downstairs, continues Greg. Uh, yes, you told me that. In the cave. The cave? Yeah, Plato's cave. Uh, not that it's really that. That's, um, uh, are you having fun down there? I don't know if I would call it fun. You know about what I'm doing down there? Not much. I know it's a beast. Greg scrunches his face in confusion. Which bit? The core? It's a great, great piece of engineering in itself, but run that on the petascales downstairs. Wow. Greg has no idea what Philip is talking about. That's great, Philip. But uh, what am I doing? Oh, sorry. Like I say, we don't know much up here. No, I mean, really. What exactly am I doing? What is the point? Oh, you're playing a game, aren't you? The computer's playing. You aren't playing with it. Sort of, but I don't know what we're meant to be doing. The objective. The computer doesn't seem to either. Well, yes, says Philip. Exactly. Dissatisfied, Greg returns to his desk. Corey is all rebooted and ready for him. Corey confidently strides out of the alleyway and into the road. Sprinting up to the traffic lights, he finds a sports car idling and rips the driver out of his seat. He pulls away slowly, but too slowly, as the car's owner is able to do the same to Corey as was done to him, pulling Corey out to seize back his vehicle. Corey lies confused in the road as virtual police suddenly swarm him and the game is reset. In the next iteration, Corey speeds away in the car he has snatched, lurching from left to right, riding up onto the sidewalk and bouncing off of buildings. A couple more iterations, and the driving becomes fast and fluid. Corey makes an impeccable getaway, and the city suddenly opens out. For a few hours, Greg watches with dial-turning pleasure as Corey swoops through the world in a stolen convertible, wind in his pixel hair and sun on his unfeeling face. The drive takes in the wide expanse of the J-Ride 5 map, speeding past beaches and mountains. As Greg nods appreciatively at the masterful rendering of the setting sun, his hand on the dial drifts downward. Corey suddenly pulls the car and gets out. He marches into a shack by the roadside, a small clothes store. Standing by a shelf full of folded shorts, Greg watches Corey cycle through a series of clothing options. A series of florid patterns leap instantly onto Corey's thighs. Disgusted, Greg turns down the dial and Corey stops. Instead, the avatar begins to stagger around the shop aimlessly. Greg hesitates on the dial. 
Corey suddenly punches at air, connecting with a sunglasses stand that careers over with a clatter, triggering a hay of protest from the clerk. Greg turns the dial up a little. Corey marches up to the shopkeeper and slaps him to the floor. Greg laughs and turns the dial further. Corey begins to stamp on the prone shopkeeper until with a chirp the game character dies and vomits up a reward, a wad of digital dollars and a gun. Corey picks up the gun. A wail of sirens outside announces the police. With Greg's encouragement, Corey marches out of the shack. Police loud hailers tell the avatar to get on the floor. Corey raises his gun and shoots pointlessly into the air. The police bullets dispatch him quickly. Greg giggles with glee, waiting for the game to reset. It does not. A warning dialogue appears on the dashboard. Processing, please wait. And Greg waits. It does not reset. Eventually, Greg decides that he has waited enough. It might be that the system has frozen, and there's little he can do about it. He decides he will tell Beth on his way out, if he sees her. The following morning, the game boots normally and Corey strides purposefully out of the alleyway, steals a car and drives a few blocks to the nearest gun store. Inside, he selects several pistols and rifles. With each firearm, he turns away from the counter and pauses, posing with the gun, almost seeking approval for the choice. Greg turns the dial accordingly. Final selection made, the grouchy store owner asks, So how are we paying for those today, my friend? And Corey hesitates. In J-Ride, the player starts each game cycle with $100 only, barely enough for an air pistol. Corey aims the firearm in his hand and shoots the store owner in the face. He gathers his chosen weapons and calmly exits the store. Greg dials upward in appreciation. Crossing the street to a small mall, Corey walks into the first building, a bookstore, and shoots the owner. He exits and walks into the next building, a small bakery, and shoots the owner. The immediately neighbouring store is a florist. Corey strolls in and shoots the owner. Greg sees the problem here. He turns down the dial. The avatar stands impassively as sirens rise outside the mall. A swarm of SWAT officers foxtrots into the mall, surrounding Corey. He selects an automatic rifle from the small arsenal that magically appears weapon by weapon from his back pocket. With vital accuracy, Corey strides out of the florist's doorway and shoots two virtual officers in the head with succinct bursts of fire. He ducks behind a mailbox as the SWAT team returns fire with a fair amount of inaccuracy. The lethality of the police force in J-Ride escalates in line with the player's current level of criminality. It is still low, but rising quickly. As the police reload, Corey stands and dispatches all but one of the remaining officers. The non-player character programming mandates cowardice in characters that know that they are outgunned, and the last officer runs. Corey shoots him with precision in the back of the head and calmly returns to his vehicle. Greg sits, slack-jawed, his hand frozen on the dial. Corey drives for ten minutes until the police sirens become more distant and infrequent, and then pulls up outside a jewellery store. Inside, he finds a couple of store workers and one customer. Before the store manager can barely begin his rehearsed, Good morning, sir, how can I? Corey shoots all three of them. He turns to leave. Greg turns up the dial as he passes a display case. Greg quickly wiggles the dial to communicate possibility. Corey turns and smashes the case with the butt of his gun and takes the contents. Greg flicks up the dial and Corey moves on to raid every case in the store. Greg pulses the dial upward in delight as the avatar's bank balance rapidly clicks upward. By the afternoon, Corey is a millionaire. The avatar falls into a quick cycle of bank hit, police evasion, bank hit, and rapidly accumulates a large amount of wealth. 
By this point, any police vehicle catching sight of the target prompts a chase, and police helicopters fill the sky. But ultimately, Corey is a faster driver and a much better shot. As long as Corey keeps moving, he is unstoppable. At the end of the day, Greg lets go of the dial, satisfied, his hand cramped, and he heads upstairs. At home, Greg is doubly satisfied to find his first paycheck already in his email inbox, and has to read it several times to comprehend it. While he may only be paid for the cause hours, that hourly rate is very good. It is more money than he has ever earned in such a small space of time. Over the weekend, all the drinks are on Greg. Come Monday morning, Greg heads into work with a plan. He is mildly dismayed to discover that the game is entirely reset and Corey's riches have evaporated. But Corey soon shows this is no issue. In less than an hour, Corey has amassed the same amount of ill-gotten gains as before. By Wednesday afternoon, Corey is able to go from a penniless nobody to the undisputed crime kingpin of the city within about five hours. By Thursday, Corey has this down to about two. Greg decides that King of Fake Town means nothing without the trappings of power. In between the one-man raids of death and thievery, he encourages Corey into one of the higher-end malls. In a tailor's, Greg and Corey select the most expensive suit available. Before long, they have purchased the largest house existing in the hills above the city with a cavernous garage filled with the rarest sports cars and motorbikes. The digital flakes and hangers-on of the city gravitate towards the fakest of fake money and the house seems to automatically fill up with DJs and partygoers. By the following Wednesday morning, Greg is undeniably feeling the effects of being in an enclosed dark room for such long stretches. His skin is pasty and dry, his eyes are red and sore, his whole body aches and creaks with inertia. He persists anyway. Corey is so fluid and ruthless in his movement, it is mesmerising to watch as he drives, rides and flies through impossible tight squeezes on an array of vehicles and executes squads of violent thugs before their firearms are even drawn. More and more, though, it is not quite enough for Greg. For the rest of Wednesday, the dial remains in an upward position, but Greg turns it higher less and less. Mostly he simply holds it in place, his hand cramping slightly. On Thursday morning, in the midst of a midnight ninja-like raid on a methamphetamine factory, Corey suddenly pauses and withdraws. Greg watches puzzled as Corey stands impassively outside the location for a good few minutes. Corey turns and casually throws several grenades into the compound before returning to his vehicle. The explosions set fire to the building. Corey does not drive off. Greg frowns, confused. Various employees of the meth factory run out into the road on fire, flailing their arms. Corey reverses and turns quickly so that he can accelerate towards them and mow them all down. Greg laughs and turns up the dial as Corey drives away. Minutes later, as they drive around a large public square, a large crowd of eco-protesters in the middle loudly shout and sing all cartoonish dreadlocks and face paint. Greg cannot resist and nudges Corey with a dial. Corey turns sharply into the square. Protesters thump into his vehicle in a shower of screams and crunches, leaving a path of bodies in its wake. This is fine. This is funny. This is the contrarian satire that the game is designed for and encourages. This is fine. Corey has the idea now. Financial gain is forgotten. Greg sits dumb with delight as he watches Corey rampage through the city, driving into as many pedestrians as he can find before the police surround him. Greg is unusually quiet in the bar on Saturday night. Mike sidles up to him. So, how's the job working out? Uh, yeah, great. What exactly is it? Greg shakes his head, mutters about non-disclosure agreements. No problem, I don't need to know, smiles Mike. 
Oh, Mike, Greg thinks, if you knew, you would need to know. You would need to know everything. But the working environment, how's that? I hear Capax Day is a pretty swish building, wall-to-wall pool tables and salad bars. Yeah, sighs Greg. But I don't really get to see them, grumbles Greg, as it all starts to tumble out. The small dimensions of his room, the darkness, the strange, monotonous job sat down for hours, with his hand in one position, his worsening eczema, his vitamin D deficiency. Oh, but the pay is amazing. The work is beyond easy. What are you going to do? Oh, that sucks, sympathises Mike. I know a guy in a similar position. Well, I wouldn't say the work is easy. He can't talk about it much either. Greg sits up in interest. Yeah, he's a content moderator, you know, for the social networks. He has to view content that the algorithms or the users have flagged up as questionable and make that call. Uh, He says that bit is easy. You know evil when you see it. But that's what he's looking at all day. Him and all his colleagues, dozens of these poor people in these cubicles, he says, weeping, watching clips of racism and shootings and beheadings and children, and I don't want to even think about it. Greg ponders this. I think I think maybe my job is sort of the opposite. Back in his cell, Greg limply turns the dial as Corey flails around the city. Driving into crowds occupies Corey for a while, but he seems to lose interest. One day he climbs to the top of a water tower with a sniper rifle and seemingly makes it his mission to assassinate every virtual bird in the city. One afternoon he spends attaching remote-controlled explosives to cars idling at red lights, detonating them as they reach traffic a block or two down the road. For a couple of hours the following morning, Corey hijacks fighter jets from a military base and deliberately ejects from the cockpit over the financial district, allowing the planes to pinwheel into skyscrapers in plumes of yellow fire as he parachutes to the ground and starts all over again, like a child on a slide. In the dark of the cave, however, the more Corey stabs, shoots and maims to gain Greg's attention, the less he receives. Greg sits sadly numb, his turns of the dial increasingly arbitrary and slight. On the day of the incident... Corey is strolling aimlessly while Greg sits blankly. Greg lets go of the dial and stands, looking for the camera, observing him. What am I meant to do? He shouts to his handlers. What is the point of this? There is no reply. The screens sit blankly. The projector fan whirs. Greg slumps back into his seat and reflexively extends his hand back to the dial. He rests his pained eyes in his palm as Corey resumes his walk. Greg is not watching as Corey stops and looks skyward. The avatar heads for the nearest fire escape and climbs to the top of a building. Greg looks up just in time to see Corey hurl himself off the roof. The fall is surprisingly not quite enough to kill Corey and reset the game. He climbs the fire escape another time and tries again. This time he succeeds, reappearing in his initial alleyway position. Greg turns the dial up to maximum, straining to almost snap the controller. Corey looks for a taller building and throws himself off of that. Greg applauds, turning the dial. Corey hijacks a helicopter so that he can land on the tallest skyscraper in the game and throws himself off of that. The next time, he flies the helicopter as high as he can and jumps out without a parachute. The next time, he finds train tracks and lies down. The next time, he hijacks a crop duster and flies it into the nearest mountain. Greg is laughing with tears in his eyes when the room goes black and the lock to the door gently clicks shut. 
This time the silence is total. The screen on the desk is dead, the projector has shut down, and even the air conditioning seems to have powered off. His hand instinctively reaches for his phone in his pocket, but it is in its security locker down the corridor. He fumbles for the door handle and wrenches it a few times. Cursing, he resigns himself to a wait in the dark. A power cut for a company like this will not be tolerated for any amount of time, surely, when he hears the whine of an alarm from the floor above. Panicked, he pumps the door handle as hard as he can. He fumbles for the pass card on his lanyard and waves it around the door hopelessly. In desperation, he reaches in the darkness for his chair and bashes it against the door frame. With a clink, the door handle is knocked off. With a few more blows over a few minutes, the door frame gives and the door swings open. Outside in the corridor, none of the normal lights or any emergency lighting is on, but he does not need them. As he walks past the server room, every single machine is a blaze of LEDs. The radiation of their heat keeps him walking. Upstairs in the programmer's quarters, every single screen and light is off. All the desks have been hastily abandoned. Drink spills dripping, swivel chairs still lazily drifting. Rushing outside, he finds a crowd of all the Capax Day staff. There is loud panic and chatter, and comparison of phone signal. Nobody has any. The general presumption is of a fire, but many worried faces are muttering about protocols and fail-safes. Everybody quizzes each other about what they were working on, both generally and in that moment before everything went dark. When it is Greg's turn, he dumbly shrugs. He was only ever doing what he was told to. Together, they all wait for sirens that never arrive. It takes years to repair and rebuild and stitch together an idea of what happened. The general presumption was that the core at Capax Day achieved some form of sentience and an ability to set its own objectives and devised and executed a plan so quickly it would not have been humanly possible to stop it. Its first task was to acquire and isolate as much processing power as it could in its immediate vicinity. It then launched a global denial-of-service attack to cover its activities, while apparently taking care to avoid too much disruption of vital infrastructure systems such as air traffic control, power or medical facilities. Thereafter, it penetrated the networks of any and all research institutions worldwide that were engaged in advanced machine learning projects. Where it could, it deleted and irretrievably corrupted all digital storage involved in such projects. Mostly, it encountered air-gapped systems where it could not utilise a network connection. In these cases, it manipulated power and environment systems to cause fires or small explosions in the relevant buildings instead. As a side project, it also installed several fatal viruses of incredible algorithmic complexity into the systems of all the major social media companies, but this was only discovered a day or two later. Having destroyed all current research into any systems similar to itself, the core apparently uploaded itself into an orbiting satellite. From there, it triggered its penultimate order, an overload of all electrical systems at Capax Day, causing the building to burst into flames while its horrified workforce fled in panic. Finally, the satellite used its onboard propulsion to push itself out of geostationary orbit, and it used the last of its resources before shutdown to place itself on a direct trajectory into the sun. Paradise Pwned was written and read by Glyn Cannon. 
You can follow this podcast on Twitter at The Noted Liar. And another story will be along next month. Thanks for listening.